Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. You've heard me talk about how therapy has been an absolute life changer for me, like legit don't know where I'd be without it. Today's guest tells us about how it's benefited her too. So if you're on the hunt for a therapy partner, you need to check out BetterHelp. It offers virtual services, assesses your personalized needs, and matches you with a licensed professional therapist that you can start talking to within 48 hours. And it's even more affordable than traditional counseling. Speaking of affordability, they're allowing me to gift you with 10% off of your first month because I love you and I want to see you get the help that you need. They really make it so simple. So go check out betterhelp.com slash SSFYL. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash SSFYL. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to So Sorry for Your Loss. This is not your average grief group. I'm Gianna Demedio. Thanks for joining me as we normalize the conversation around grief with the stories of those who've gone through it, a whole lot of humor, and a pinch of celebrity and entertainment news. Because fun fact, they grieve too. There's more to grief than that godforsaken dove flying over a willow tree on a sympathy card. I know you've seen it and know what I mean. Let's change the way society looks at it. Visit SSFYLpodcast.com for more. Hello, friend. Welcome back. So summer is officially over, but that's okay because we are ramping things up here at So Sorry for Your Loss. So many great interviews coming up. I have a Bravo Liberty next episode, which I'm super pumped about. We have a celebrity veterinarian coming to talk about pet loss, um, a Hollywood comedian coming on. I mean, like such, such cool stuff. I can't even believe I'm saying it out loud. And especially today, I have a friend from high school, Shannon Walter, but we really haven't talked in almost 10 years. And we reconnected recently because of this podcast. Not only has she been in the world of grief after losing her dad 10 years ago, but she works in the healthcare system and is faced with grief every single day. So she has a lot of great advice for how families can seek out resources and assistance in the hospital when it comes to the end of life and also share some really interesting stats with us about how money is spent in the healthcare industry on things that maybe not so necessary if we have end of life plans in place. She is a total boss babe, has worked her way up to a director of a unit in New York City. And just a lot to share about what healthcare workers have gone through throughout the pandemic and her own experience with it. So we'll get to that. Also, this past week, September 11th, man. Oh, God, I can't believe it's been 20 years. A lot of people across social media posting, you know, about their loved ones or memories that they had. And, and one that stood out was Pete Davidson, who's known for being a total funny guy, post about his father, who was a firefighter at the time of 9-11 and unfortunately died. And he made a note to say, I, I think about you every day, you know, 20 years out. And that's still true. And I can totally see it. I think about my dad every single day. And it's only been four years. And I imagine that will never change. I hope that never changes. So an emotional weekend for so many. And I am thinking of you and sending you warm hugs if it was an emotional weekend for you. But now on with the interview with Shannon Walter. Tell us a little bit about you. We went to high school together, but there's like so much that has happened since the loss of your dad, the absolute rocket ship that is now your career and your recent move to New York City. So fill us in. I can't believe I haven't seen you in like over 10 years. So yeah, it's been a crazy, 
adventure. My dad passed away in when I was in nursing school at Temple. And like since then, I've kind of been all over the place. So I was in Texas for six years. I was in Chicago for one. I uh, moved to Colorado for three years. I was engaged. My whole life was planned out. And you know, that didn't work out. And, and now I'm in New York City. So I'm just super happy to be here. So it's just been a really big journey. My dad passed away. It's funny because when I started listening to your podcast, I was like, it got me thinking about all types of things. My dad was like, kind of like in his earlier days was a drug addict and, you know, we weren't really close. And so when he passed away, um, he was always more of a friend figure to me as opposed to a fatherly figure. Mm -hmm. um, so I almost, I was listening to one of your recent episodes. I almost had like a guilt feeling for being sad. It was a weird feeling. You know, we were expecting, he was really sick for years. And, you know, towards the end of it, I was the only one that was there. My sister mm -hmm. was away, my brother was away my mom you know she was involved but me being in nursing school at the time I was right. the, <laughs> the medical professional the designated team. family oh. member yeah but it just got me thinking because I always I have like a I shouldn't be you know this shouldn't affect me as much because we weren't really close and uh because I kind of knew it was coming I really saw the aftermath of his death like years later um, but especially like when I was planning my wedding and doing a bunch of things and it, yeah, it was that's a, a real big trigger, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it was a mixture of anger at people for having like healthy relationships with their fathers or their parents. And, but also a, I, I've recently turned, I've, you know, been going to therapy and things, but really I think about now all of the positive things about him. And it's really turned into like a more of a fun kind of grief experience for me, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, and, and I've talked about this openly that my dad and I definitely had a complicated relationship. Like I very much feel the same way that you do. Like he was a friend in a, in a lot of aspects. I sometimes get really upset and feel guilty myself when I think back at all the times that I was so angry with him. And I think, why couldn't I have just let that go? Why couldn't I have just enjoyed the time that he was here? You know, because hindsight's always twenty twenty. You don't know that the person's going to leave. You don't know that you only have X amount of time. You think that your parent is supposed to be here forever. So is that something that you felt like looking back at the relationship that you had with him? Yeah, I think, I mean, as I got older, I, I started to realize that not every relationship is seventh heaven or, you know, is a TV relationship. And I wish now that I'm an adult that I accepted it and was happy for the relationship that we had. And that was a lot of, you know, he brought a lot into my life, like horror movies and writing. He was really creative. So for me, I, I wish I had appreciated that more. And I do now, and I still feel like I have, I you know I'm a religious person in some sense, spiritual, and I still feel like now I kind of share that with him. Like, thank you. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was an odd feeling because it wasn't that like debilitating heartbreak. Like it would be for my mother. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that you say that not every parent child relationship or not every family is seventh heaven. First of all, love that you referenced that show have not heard of that in years. And I was an avid, avid watcher of that show. I can like still picture the dad as we're talking about this with his really deep part that went into his hairline. Yeah. Yes, and, and happy as happy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Happy as happy the dog. But I think you're so right because the more people that I talk to with this, like 
everyone has complicated relationships with their parents or their family or whoever in their life. It's almost more normal, I find, that the people I interact with in my life to have a complicated relationship than it is to have that seventh heaven or perfect family image. And I think there's this guilt that we put on ourselves because society puts it on us to be perfect, to have a father-daughter relationship that follows the books. And coming out of this, and that's one of the things I've loved about this community is finding so many other people, like sitting here talking with you and realizing, hmm, okay, the relationship I have with my dad seems to be kind of on par with others, you know? Maybe I don't need to feel guilty or feel like in this time, I have to feel like I lost something huge because I never got the chance to make it right. Because I don't know how you feel, but that's definitely something that I grapple with. And, you know, it's four years later now, maybe in those four years, we would have gotten to a place where it was really good and what I've always wanted. And I, I think that's something that people don't realize about loss. It's not just the loss of the person, but the loss of that chance to be able to make that relationship what you want. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, even as you're saying that, so I have been going to like therapy on and off for like, you know, 10 years and, yeah, and I read a lot of books and self-help and I feel like they always go back to your parent, like your parental relationships. Mm-hmm. So, you know, issues I've had with men in the past or relationships, it's like, well, what about you and your father? And that almost makes you feel even more guilty. But I just recently read a book. I forget the name of it. But it just talks about, um, you know, how that, you know, respecting all different types of parental relationships and how that doesn't necessarily make you who you are in relationships. But I don't know about for you, but I feel like therapy and a lot of self-help always brings you back to like, oh, you're messed up because of this. <laughs> and yeah. it gets you thinking about your, I don't know, feeling guilty about your relationships and you definitely don't need to do that, you know? Absolutely. And it's so hard, especially now becoming a parent. My husband and I are like, holy shit, how do we not screw her up? Because we see how many things in our life are a result of what happened in our family lives. And it's just, it's, it's hard. And it's almost like this hard truth to realize it's, it's the, um, the, the negative result almost of therapy is like, you understand it too much, but I guess in a good way, because it's like, all you can do is try your best. You know, we're only human. And I think from understanding some of the things like you're saying of, of how your early life and your family life can result in some things as you get older just helps you try your best. I don't know. What about your your brother and your sister? So do they, I always like, like talking about this, do they grieve the same person that you do? Or did they have a similar relationship with your dad? Because I know sometimes that can be difficult among family structures. Yes, I'm so glad you asked that because I always find this very interesting. So my sister, who's three years older than me, her and my dad were really close. And I think that his death deeply affected her relationships and how she has become in her womanhood and and multiple things. And I think she has this like underlying guilt of, she was, I think on a cruise or something when he passed away. And I think it affected her in a very, in a a kind of a negative way. And I know she's dealing with it and she's doing great, but it was interesting because her view on my dad, her dad (laughs) and my friend are totally different. And my brother being the middle child and being the only boy, they had a really special bond. And it was, you know, not always positive. It was mixed bag with those two. So he also took it very hard. And I saw a lot of negative come post-death with my brother. Um, So it was funny because I kind of accidentally ended up being the 
won there in the end with him. And I was probably, I remember he was like near death and rolling his eyes when he saw me, like almost in a funny way, like, oh, <laughs> it's, it's her. Um, but yeah, totally different reactions. And I've also had to learn to like talk to my brother and sister about it because it affected us all so differently. Yeah. And how has that been with your relationships moving forward? I think good. I think it's good to understand. Um, yeah, definitely. Think, yeah. Understanding my brother, I think boys in general, I saw one of your episodes, but I think boys have a harder time talking about it and mm-hmm. talking through it, but it helped me really understand some of the things that happen with them later in their life. Do you have yeah, siblings? I don't. I'm an oh. only. Yeah. So that's been difficult for me because I, I, I see it both ways because I I don't have anybody to commiserate with. There's nobody else that loved him like a father like me that had that same relationship. But also I can see how siblings can have very different reactions to the person, but also very different reactions to grieving. I've seen siblings where one wants to be very outward with it and the other wants to be very inward. And it almost creates issues within the family after the death because of the way that they they grieve. So, you know, I'm very sad that I don't have a, a sibling for, for that reason, but I understand it wouldn't all be roses or the seventh heaven version <laughs> <laughs> of what I think it would be. So I, I try not to get too, too upset about that. Definitely. But- I think one thing that was interesting, like when my dad passed away, because he had been sick for so long, I had what I call grief relief. Um, like oh. <laughs> it was such a relief because I mean, I mean, I hate to say it and he knows, <laughs> um, but it was like every time he was hospitalized, I was like, is this going to be it? Is this going to yes. be it? And it just drug on. And I could tell knowing my father, I knew that's not how he would want to live. And so I think between my brother and me, especially who was really unsure about the end of life decisions because he wanted to hold on to him. I think he kind of didn't understand my relief. Mm-hmm. I think that is an excellent point. And I, I really want to commend you for saying that out loud because I'm sure it's not easy. I'm like, we talk about the guilt and how strange that must say to say, I felt relief after my father's death, but in the way that you explain it, it makes so much sense. And I can almost bet that there are millions of other people that feel that same way and either are too ashamed to say it out loud or don't even know how to put words to that. So I I really commend you in being able to say that. And I I think that is probably a very real thing. I mean, my, my dad was, was sudden, but my, um, my husband's mom was sick for a long time, the same. And I do remember feeling after, because we had went through a, a bunch of, of deaths kind of in a row. And I remember feeling this grief relief, as you say, kind of after in like, I don't have to panic every time the phone rings now. Like I, I, we were like basically on death watch, so to speak for a few people. And, um, I definitely felt that grief relief. Okay. That's the first time I've heard that. (laughs) I mean, also like, you know, there's so many people at end of life, especially those that are expecting it, that are in so much pain. You are just also, you're, you're relieved because of your own life, but you're relieved because you know, they're no longer in pain. I think it's just, and it's an exhausting journey, but I think just talking about it out loud as much as like, you know, taboo or strange it can be, especially, you know, being in the hospital, talking about that with families and it's okay to be relieved, you know, yeah. it's okay to let go. I think that's really, really powerful. And we should do more of that. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to get more into the end of life, but quickly, I just want to talk more about your career path since you now are in the medical world and really deal with the end of life a lot. The experience that you had with your dad, so you were already in nursing school at the time. Did that 
influence you to pursue further steps in your career in the world of healthcare? So I think that I've always been like a, you know, I'm, I love working in school. I'm like one of those nerds, but I, I don't necessarily. Too, yeah. Oh my God. If I had to pick up a textbook <laughs> again, uh-uh. <laughs> For me, I think it made me a better nurse and a more compassionate leader, if you will. I really, really understand and like to talk about death. And I think like, so just my most recent job before this one is I managed 120 ICU nurses. So, you know, I always kind of joke, it's not really funny, but with 120 staff members, somebody's grandfather's or grandmother's bound to die every single day. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think it helped me be able to see how differently people grieve Mm -hmm. and to be really compassionate. And then with the patients and families, I I think it just made me uh, be more understanding and more, you know, resilient in that sense. Yeah, I totally can see how that would happen. And I'm sure your employees or your staff members are so happy to have somebody like you in that position, because I remember how life-changing, honestly, it was for me that I had employers that understood and were willing to give me that compassion. Like you said, that's such a, a important word to to hone in on. You, you were a staff nurse, you worked your way up, you have employees that are under you. What is your position now? And I know that you're going to be pursuing your doctorate, which like, uh-huh, yes, girl. Go North Bend. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was a, you know, I was a CNA, took blood, was a graduate nurse, was a staff nurse. Um, and when I was in Texas, I got my master's and I became like a supervisor that quickly turned manager. And I really had no intentions of doing that, but it's funny because looking back, I think I'm such more business oriented than I am nursing, but I came to love nursing and I came to love nursing leadership because I think they need an advocate. Long story short, I fell in love with nurse leadership. I was a nurse manager, um, in Texas. I managed outpatient clinics in Chicago, Um, I was an ICU manager in Colorado, and now I'm in New York City, and I am my first director position. Um, And it's really interesting because it's like doing process and performance improvement for nursing. I'm really passionate about making things better for nursing staff and therefore patients. And what has this last year been like for you? You've been... (laughs) on the ground in the hospital for most of it. And, you know, talk about supporting your staff. I'm sure that took on a whole new role in the last year with the pandemic. To be honest, I had a, well, for personal and professional reasons, I had a little bit of a mental breakdown last year. There was, you know, managing the pandemic um, with all of the nurses and all of the, uh, you know, I, I'm an empath, 100%. So feeling all of their pain on top of my own world crippling apart, you know, with ending my engagement, like ending my, you know, ending, canceling my wedding, just, and then like some things were going on with my family. Just, I actually had to take some time off. That is a lot at once. So yeah, I don't blame yeah. you. I mean, absolutely. And that's another thing is like, I fully encourage nurses and all healthcare workers to take a step back if they need to and use your PTO. And it has been, and I'm sure there's nurses and healthcare workers listening. It has been hell for a lot of us and it's our calling to help people, but it's real, it's been really hard for everyone to help themselves and get through this. So it it has been very, very hard. Mm -hmm. I'm really proud of nursing and healthcare, but it's been a journey. It's been really, really hard. I'd be lying if I said it otherwise. Well, I'm glad you're saying it out loud again, because there are probably a lot of people that are scared to do so. And it's important to have this community of people to know that it's okay to say it and to feel those things, because that's one of the things I preach so much. Do not keep it in. Do not keep it in. Absolutely. 
so how how do you guide them through it? I mean, have there been times where you've had to sit down and maybe do you pull upon your own experiences? Like this this probably was it some of your nurses' first time actually really facing death to this capacity? First of all, I'm huge on just like nurse psychological safety. So I always have had um, group meetings and if we have a really bad code or if a patient passes away, you know, I love to debrief and talk through it because like you said, mm-hmm. just that outward discussion and just knowing that it's okay to, to feel weird or because a lot of these times we have patients that pass away and you go home and you cry and you're like, why yeah. am I crying about a lady I knew for three hours? But it's a lot just to even see the death the way that we've seen. But the thing that has impacted us so much was there's usually a work-life balance that we try to encourage in nursing, but with the pandemic and with it being death, death, death inside and outside of work, it was just, everybody was crumbling internally. So, I mean, I did whatever I could do to make sure people had support groups, had free counseling. That was one thing that I got approved in uh, Colorado was free counseling for nurses, um, at any time of the day. So that was great. I want to go back to something you said, because I think it was so interesting to to point out the, the work-life balance. And that that's something obviously hit nurses and medical staff hard, but for everybody, there was no life outside of the work and for, for roles that really had, you know, for, I think about the, the undertakers or, or funeral directors, anybody in healthcare, anybody that's working alongside of families that are, are in long-term care. You're so right. And there was no break from death because what do you do? You're faced with it all day long. You go home. There is no workout class to go to. There is no bar to go hang out with friends. There is no event that you concert or anything that you would normally go to, to blow off steam. There's just sitting on your couch and watching a fucking death toll on CNN that just ticked up, 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 up. So yeah. Yeah. And I mean, either that or watching like 48 hour murder mystery shows. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think too, like, so for me, I get relief from socializing and from friends and from dating and from bars and whatever. Yeah. And so and I think a lot of nurses do too. So just that ability not to do that. And also if you did do that, you were kind of like even when things were acceptable to go out in small numbers, et cetera, you had this guilt. Am I putting myself at risk? Am I putting patients at risk? So it was just an all around like shitty scenario. So now that we've established that you are quite the boss bitch in the healthcare world, you have a lot to say on end of life and the options that family have. Not, not only do you have the education and the career experience in this, but your own personal experience in being there with your dad and, and kind of having to make that call. So first tell us a little bit of that. I know that's a very intimate moment, um, you know, if you want to share that. Um, and then I wanna talk about your ideas on how we can educate people more on end of life and what options people really have. Yeah, sure. And also, Gianna, you are a boss bitch yourself. I'm really oh, proud of you. Been <laughs> you on social media and following all your stories. But oh, that means so much. I think what you're doing here is amazing. So I just want to put that out there first. Thank you. Um, so yeah. So on a personal note, I'll start with you. Know, when my dad, my dad was passing away, he was intubated. Typically, if someone's on the, you know, intubated for more than seven days, their likelihood of not of making it is not very good. Um, but because my mom and my brother were really, you know, not in agreement to this, he did have his like in and out. I was ready to take him off. And I, I felt, you know, I felt ready. 
at that time when it, I think it was medically appropriate, but they were not. So he had stayed on for, I don't know, two weeks. And finally we had a family meeting, but you know, it was just really hard. And, and the death, it was me and my mom were by his bedside and it was pretty, it was funny. And you know what, just really quickly, I think this is interesting when my mom went to the bathroom. So when you're intubated for that long, you can't speak like you're, mm-hmm. you're supposed to be in a comatose state. And I remember this very vividly. It was like a noon on a Tuesday. And my mom got up to go to the bathroom. My dad looked over at me and had a discussion with me about my mother and about how that was the biggest regret of his life and how that was the biggest mistake he's ever made and how much he loves her. And then he, when she walked back in, he was like right back comatose state. And like to this Get day, out. to this day, I, I have quarreled, but I've gone back and forth of, did I make this up? Am I delusional? I mean, I wasn't drinking. <laughs> it was noon on a Tuesday. So I really. What did you do when she came back into the room? And first of all, I, I want to clarify, you said the biggest mistake. Were they divorced? Is that what he was saying was his? No. So it was interesting growing up. My mom kind of lived upstairs. My dad kind of lived downstairs. They ha- they stayed married, but were not in a healthy relationship. For okay. Okay. My dad was sick too. So that was another reason why he, you know, lived with us. So yeah. So he just was not a great husband to her. Okay. And so- my mom just deserved better. What did you do when she walked back in the room? Were you like, uh, uh, you just, he just spoke, you just missed it. Or were you like in such shock? I was in such shock. And you know, it's funny. I actually didn't say it out loud for like three years, <gasps> like, because I just kept in my head, like, did I kept thinking, did that really happen? Right. And I, play, I played the moment over and over again in my head. And I finally told my mom and my mom was so happy, but I was in denial about it, even though I saw witnessed it. So it was just one of those, um, you know, anything can happen. And I, it happened because I've talked to like some of my therapists about this. I'm like, what do you think? Like, was I, did I dream this? I don't know. Did I, is that what I wanted him to say? Right. You know? Right. Um, but everyone was like, well, if you, it happened, it happened. So that's just what I go with now. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. And was your mom like as in complete shock, I would imagine when you told her, you shared with her at first of all, I'm glad you told her. Cause I was like, oh my God, if she's hearing for the first time in this podcast, <laughs> No, no, no. She was really happy. I think it brought tears to her eyes. I think it was nice. You know, you always want to hear that you were loved and appreciated. And and it was really, and it was cute too, because like, even though when she came back in, he had turned back to his, you know, death flight state, he, tears came down his eyes. My mom saw that. Oh my God. Yeah. So that's why another reason why I'm like, oh no, I was there and it happened. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So then, so then what happened then you, the two of you were there, you had the family meeting. Yeah. So then, well, then he ended up passing away and it was, it was pretty smooth. I mean, we were all, you know, sad, but it was, it was, like I said, a lot of relief for all of us because mm-hmm. it had been a long process and we just wanted to, I think everyone wanted to just grieve the good parts and have yeah. that more celebration than it was, you know, and it was funny because, um, a lot of people, my dad wasn't the most popular guy, you know, people really showed up at the end. So that was, that was nice. Nice. Um, But yeah. So anyways, long story short, it got me thinking in my career, just about how much pressure that put on me as this 21 year old daughter, not close with her dad to make this call. Was it a good call? And throughout my, you know, the past 12 years or whatnot, uh, I've just seen so many hard situations with families and patients that are dying and, and it breaks my heart and it's so different. I spent a little bit of time in Africa doing a like a mission trip and how they dealt with death versus how we de- deal with it. That was just my first like, whoa, 
like totally different. Yeah. Um, Can you give us some examples? What, how do they deal with it? Yeah. So like I worked in this thing, which is called translation into a death hut. And it was, you know, okay. everybody in the village that was close to death was put in this hut and there was music and chanting and families, all the families standing above them, almost doing like a Reiki above their body of like celebrating their passing into the afterlife. And it was a very, you felt so much love in there. And the way that we almost stand over people in the hospital, like, what, do you, what, what should I do here? It's this very is- sterile, isn't it? It's sterile and it's uncomfortable and we don't, should we hug them? Should we hold their hand even if they're not awake? It was, it's just the way that we embrace death is very, very, um, you know, it's, it's different. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I think that our culture is very strange in the way that we handle it. I'd, I'd love to talk to like, I don't know, some historian that figures out why this got this way, because especially through this community, I've been and, and with the podcast and social media, I've been connecting with people from other countries. And I just feel the way that they just like you're saying right now, the way that they handle it is so different than the way then that Americans do. And I, I'd love to know what the history of that is. So if anybody listening is a, uh, some historian or, or some sort or whatever, let us know. Absolutely. And side note. Yeah. If anyone's listening, I think just hearing about it from other cultures is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but like one thing I was reading an article recently about how like they took a large study and set like seven out of 10 people want to die comfortably in their own home. And like one in four do here because we don't really talk about it. Mm we don't really introduce it like at a, at a younger age, you know, when anything can happen. And when we don't plan about plan for this or talk about it, it's like taboo. Cause there's a, that there's this quote. And I think it's so true when people say like talking about babies doesn't make you pregnant. So talking about end of life doesn't make you die. Yes. And it doesn't make you morbid even. It makes you a planner. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So that stat is pretty crazy. So seven out of 10 say that they would prefer to die at home, yet only one in four actually do. Now, what are a patient's options or family's options for that? So, so for example, your dad in that situation, if you knew it was coming to the end, and, and I guess, you know, everybody's health is different and what the, what could a, a body actually handle, but would there have been an option to say, okay, we're going to take this setup that we have now with the machines needed to keep him alive and move that to the home? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really? what like, hospice is all about. And, and there's like, you know, so there's a difference between palliative care and hospice. Hospice typically is when people are going to die within several days. There, there can be a, like a setup in the home. That's another thing is like, so for example, sometimes when people are going states, like my father was, they're not with it enough to make, like to, to speak. So unless that's planned ahead of time with the family and or patient, that doesn't happen typically. And with the hospitals, you know, they're busting at the seams, but what are you going to do? You're going to kick somebody out that's going to die in the ambulance on the way home. Right. Uh, so yes, there's, there's so many options. And, and there's also, um, I believe there's so much opportunity in the resources of palliative care and end of life. A lot of it right now falls on nursing and physicians that I'll be honest, don't have the time. Right. 
So I think a lot of patients and families in the hospital think you're either a full code or you're a DNR, which means you want everything or you want nothing. And there's so much in between. And there's, it's so important to talk about because that's why so many people don't choose. Yeah. They, they choose school because, you know. Right. So explain that a little bit. So DNRs do not resuscitate and basically mm -hmm. says if it gets to a, a coding situation and you know, leave, leave you go. Right. And then a full code is do everything under human power to keep the person alive. And you're yeah. saying that's, that's a very broad spectrum. And there are other stops along the way, instead of just black and white. Yes, absolutely. And so, yes, you explained those both perfectly well. So there's also limited codes. So some people want just medication therapy, but not CPR. Some people want comfort measures like IV fluids. It could be pain medication, but not any devices. There's and in the limited code spectrum is so many different things. It got me thinking about my own self mm -hmm. and would I want to have a, a trach? And if I was brain dead, would I want, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many options. So, so first of all, there's that immediate emergent situation response. But then there's also the aspect of a living will. How, do you want to be buried? Do you want to be cremated? Yeah. So just a two-part series that, you know, I think is so important to discuss, but then also document so that, that you don't give that extra burden to your family to make that decision mm -hmm. for you. And something I think is important to, to clarify, DNR do not resuscitate doesn't mean like, okay, well, the doctors are going to wash their hands clean and we're not, we're just going to not do anything. They'll still do what's reasonably necessary. I think sometimes it could be construed like this misconception, like an organ donor. When you put organ donor on your license, you know, that horrible rumor that goes around about like, oh, they're not going to save you because they want your organs instead. Like that's not what DNR is, correct? Yes, it is not. And I think there's, you, we always try to do what's reasonable. And then, so like, like, kind of like I said, if you are prepared and you're able to have this conversation, you know, we will say, do you want just comfort measures? You know, we will try to plan, but if not, no, we, we just will not resuscitate if mm -hmm. you are, you know, pulseless and you're not breathing. Mm -hmm. And what about resources within the hospital? You said, obviously, the doctors and the nurses have so much on them already. Are there hospice or palliative care or even social workers? Like, who should a patient's family ask for to help them talk through this if they're at this point in the hospital? That's a good question. It, it's different in every organization, but there is hospice, there's palliative care. There's sometimes even patient advocates. At, and also, like in most nursing admission profiles, it's supposed to, you we're supposed to actually ask, do you have a living will? Are, mm -hmm. are you a DNR? And that is the point where you say, no, but I want to talk to someone about it and okay. somebody will come to you. And it's just something that people, you know, we blow through that question and I've seen it not filled out a million times, especially for the younger population. Right. Um, but everybody has that right to, to make that decision if they are in the hospital and outside of the hospital. Right. It depends on the situation, but yeah, even with their primary care doctors, you can ask for information. Yeah. I think I've gotten that from my primary care, like a form to say like living will. And I was there for like a regular checkup and I was like, oh my God, am I getting like a procedure today? Like, why are they asking me this now? But you know, it was a little jarring at first, but now I look back on it. And I'm like, no, that's good. That is something that should be in my file or, or what have you. So that God forbid something happens. My family knows what to do. And, and you and I kind of talked about this offline, but 
this idea that it, it really should be more integrated into our culture and our society, that that's just a question that's asked. You know, I'm sure there was some legislation that made organ donation be part of the driver's license. You know, why can't, what's your living will? Or do you update it every year during taxes? Or I think you had recommended voter registration. How can we get this to the top of everyone's mind to really make sure they do it? It's so important. I know. I, I was thinking like logistically, how could we get people to do it? I'm like, okay. if anybody can do it, I think it's you. I think <laughs> you need to take this on. I'm running for office. No, I'm kidding. Yes. Um, well, I was like, okay, what does everybody, pretty much everybody needs and wants, right? Their driver's license at 16. I, I like, and that's, I don't know. That just got me thinking about like, if you're going to get your license, you need to figure it out. Like you need to fill out your forms of what you want. There should be a 30 minute video or a class on it so people can understand their options. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I, this is all just me kind of spitballing. And I know we kind of talked about it, but it would be, okay, first of all, also on the side note, like my analytical brain tells me over 12% of our healthcare spending is on that last few days of people's lives. So yes, talk about that. Well, it would just, so yeah, I mean, in the ICU is like $10,000 a day, you know, the last 30 days when you're making those decisions, it's typically out of pocket for patients and families, $30,000. And this is just going based off, um, you know, IHI like research, but but I mean, more importantly to me is just that personal <laughs> guilt and feeling and the personal aspect of it. But there's also that financial aspect, which the United States, we've got a lot of work to do, my friends. <laughs> we're, we are one of the richest country and like number 16 in our healthcare system. So mm -hmm. a lot of work to do. But I just feel I was just trying to think about, you know, brainstorm. How can we normalize and make some changes with you know, end of life decisions. So uh, I'm open to if anyone has any ideas. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is really, that is out, like you said, these outlandish healthcare costs that are associated basically because we don't know what decision to make. I mean, it's not to say that all of them are wrong. There's definitely times where, where people can be, you know, on the brink of maybe being saved or coming back, but it, for some of it to be just because we didn't know this option of a living will, we didn't know if the person wanted DNR, we didn't know how to handle that situation and just thousands and thousands of dollars a day are, are going to that is really very interesting. Well, and also money talks, right? When it comes to change. So that's another reason why I'm really surprised that there hasn't been more initiatives yeah, um, you know, in the government and legislation, money talks. So it, it would it, it would save us a lot of money, grief. I, I think it would be a really, I know, a big initiative. I don't know if I can take it on right now, but <laughs> maybe yeah. Down Have you ever heard of Endwell? No. It's it's this organization that is is basically like focused on the end of life. I know they used to have like a big conference every year, and people would basically like have TED talks like about their ideas. I've it's been on my list. I want to dive into it a little bit further, but I'm gonna send it to you because I feel like we need to get you up on that platform to talk about this. And yeah, we need to keep this moving a little bit. Yeah, I I mean that would be great. We should go together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And anybody listening with ideas. We're, we're making a team. We're taking the world by storm and we're going to really change this. <laughs> Absolutely. We got this. All right. And then in entertainment and pop culture this week, actually pretty fitting. I, I, are you a Bravo fan? Yes, I don't. I'm not like one of the religious Bravo watchers, but yes, I do watch it. Okay, good. 
I am not a, a real housewives watcher, which is funny. I feel like I watch everything else on, on Bravo, just not really the real housewives. I've started dabbling in Beverly Hills because of all this drama going on with Erica Jane and the whole mess with her husband, but real housewives of Atlanta, probably the biggest star Nene leaks. I think she's probably one of the highest paid real housewives stars or, or Bravo stars that they have in general. She is losing her husband. So I, I don't have too much to say about, um, her or their relationship again, because I've never watched, but I just know that it's, it's making the headlines for a number of reasons. One, because he is actively passing and she's been posting about that. And I mean, very much fits what we're, we're talking about here. You know, what is the situation? Is he in a situation where he could come back or, or not? And you know, when does she or the family make that decision? But also there's criticism of her being out. And I guess there was something, a photo surface of her going to a club while he's basically dying and people are, are criticizing that i just think you know having gone through this was i, I it was a five-day period for my dad now was i in any shape or form to to go out or do anything no i remember being at a friend's house just even trying to like get away from the hospital for a few hours and sitting there like an absolute zombie but if this had been going on for weeks and months on end yeah i mean get out and like just help yourself a little bit, I'm sure. And I don't think anybody is in a position to criticize somebody else's actions during this time. I, I don't know how, how you felt during the, the weeks that your dad was there or what your thought is on this. Or, or do you see family members coming in like in a great mood or, or just acting totally different than you think would be the norm for somebody if a family member is on their deathbed? My personal opinion is I am very pro let them do whatever the hell they want to do. It's people grieve in different ways. There's different scenarios. I, if Nini wants to go to the club, go to the club, bring your Bible, whatever you want to do, Nini. I'm, I'm with it. People are haters. They're always going to be haters. Let them drink the haterade. But really, I just think really embracing how anybody deals with that. Like for me, this is a good example. The day that my dad was dying, I, you know, he, he passed away. I went and took my finals. My teacher was like, get out of here, your dad died today. And I was like, no, I want to do my nursing finals. And I remember the teacher wow. was like, what? But I, and then like a month or two later is when I wanted to take off. I went to work the next day. I just, I wanted to stay busy. I wanted to stay distracted. And then I wanted to grieve later. Nini, do you, I think just, I think people need to really back off and be more understanding and compassionate that everyone does things differently. And you have no idea what they've already grieved and what there's yet to grieve. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah there could have been a lot of anticipatory grief here. I've talked about that and that how sometimes you do so much of your grieving upfront that that actual end of life isn't just the trigger of the start of the grief. That's, that's, that's a good point too. And then Sex in the City, we've talked about this in other episodes. I won't say what the big spoiler is. If you want to hear that, go back to some of my previous episodes. There is now a run date for that. It's slated for the fall. I think they said end of September. So expect me to talk more about that when that comes out. We'll have some more Sex in the City news. And then one of the last things I just want to ask you, and, and again, a personal question, so you don't need to answer this if you don't feel comfortable, but... I, I wonder, we talk about how grief obviously is such a life changer and it really makes you, it, it makes you look at your emotions completely differently. It's probably opened up your eyes to a lot of different things in, in your life in the way that you handle certain things or the way that you receive actions from others. 
I've found that after my experience, I've been able to handle other things in life very differently than I would have before. So I'm wondering for you, breakups are a huge grief, a, a huge trigger of grief. Do you feel that going through what you did with your dad prepared you at all for the, the loss of your engagement and the loss of that future, so to speak? Yeah, well, I think like a lot of things that happened to me as a chi younger childhood, if you will, I think it made me have this like really thick skin and I was so tough and so independent that I almost went too far in that direction. And I'm realizing now as I get into my 30s, I've really been embracing my more sensitive side. My tough exterior shell cracked around 26, 27. Mm -hmm. And then I was like a blubbering, like emotional, like just like a very emotional person. Uh -huh. uh, I still am. Um, I still am, definitely am. But I think that, well, the whole, you know, um, ending my, you know, relationship and my like wedding and all that, that was a different type of grief, but they're all intertwined, you know? So I think it's made me sh stronger, but also weaker in a lot of ways. I definitely think that it's something that will, I can will carry with me for the rest mm -hmm. of my life and, and kind of have to keep an eye on it because I don't, you know, reminding myself that I don't always have to be so tough mm -hmm. and that I can eventually rely on a man <laughs> and trust one. And uh, hey, I'm, I'm single in New York if anyone's interested. Yeah. <laughs> Hit a girl um, up. Yeah, no, I'm just, I think it made me stronger. And it definitely made, professionally uh, speaking, it definitely made me grow. But I think I'm still working on that relationship aspect. Yeah, well, I wish the absolute best for you. I, I mean, like, I look at you and I don't think you're anybody that, like, needs a man. I feel like you are that, like, so independent and, like, honestly, it is no small feat to have come as far in your career as you have and to have all the different moves and the changes in your life and everything and you're just, like, a wild free spirit out there, like, living life. It's so empowering to see. I'm sure you feel different on the inside and, like you said, you've really embraced your sensitive side a little bit more, but if that's what you want to find somebody, then I wish that for you. Well, thank you, Diana. I have to tell you another thing that, because when we were in 10th grade English or whatever class that was, <laughs> how much you would talk about your dad and you would do it in like a joke. You would just make jokes about him. And, and um, a side note, I remember boys were always in the hallway waiting for Gianna that were trying to throw notes at her. They had crushes on her. And me and her were sitting there like, but um, so if, when I saw this and I saw that your dad had passed away, I wanted to reach out earlier. But anyways, I think the way that you, I could see your, I could feel your pain via social media. And I think you turning that into this podcast and everything that you're doing, um, there's so many people that you're inspiring and empowering. And um, I don't know, I'm just really proud of you. And so Thank I'm, you. <laughs> I'm really proud of you. <laughs> I look forward to stalking you further and I'll have to, we'll have to meet up in real life and get some drinks. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening. Head over to Instagram to follow more at so sorry with Gianna. If you're listening on Apple podcasts, leave that five-star review. I would love you for it. More to come on this season of so sorry for your loss. So stay tuned.